Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Historically Speaking Podcast, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 22 years. Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Historically Speaking Podcast. We're so glad to bring you this episode on time, because last time we recorded, we weren't quite sure if we were going to get this out in time. That's right. You were performing in Lancaster. I know, and I have since closed that show, and I start another show tomorrow. Yes, with pa- about Patsy Cline. About Patsy Cline. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has a big Patsy Cline fan out there, head over to Walnut Street Theater. Right, right there in Philly. Yep. April. April and May. Mm-hmm. Okay. Enough of a plug about me. <laughs> uh, I think you have a message that you would like to say to our listeners. Yes. I, I'd like to uh, say something. In a previous episode on the Crimean War, our 41st episode, I thought I had done okay. But when I listened to the podcast uh, after Rebecca edited it, I was shocked that at the two-minute sum mark and the five-minute sum mark, I had made two egregious mistakes. You don't have to refer to me in the third person. I'm right here. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just FYI. (laughs) Uh, At the two-minute mark, I refer to the Ottoman Empire, and at the five-minute mark, I refer to the Turks. And in both instances, I meant the Russians. Now, why it came out the Ottoman Empire and the Turks... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that happens. You can think one thing and something completely different comes out of your mouth. Well, in the course of that podcast, twice I said the Congress of Vienna while I'm at the Congress of Paris, but you corrected me on that. Very enthusiastically. Right. So those two were very minor and they were corrected, but the two that left were left uncorrected until I listened to the podcast. Which and, we did put a note in the uh, bio. I just want to say uh, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And I just want to be expansive here and, and mention that the facts of history are so important. The arithmetic of history are the facts. And the broad sweeping view, history is the greatest adventure story, is the calculus of history. But you can't you can't engage in calculus if you don't know arithmetic. You really gotta get the facts down. And I am a stickler for that. Yes, but I, I made know. I made two <laughs> terrible Egregious mistakes. to you. Egregious to me. So we've I, had no listener write in and complain. Well, Yet. It's it's unacceptable and it's uh, inexcusable. Well, having just played a nun I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you, sister. <laughs> and speaking of religion, yeah. in this episode, we're going to be talking about Martin Luther. And, and the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. Right. One of the earth-shaking events in Western history. That's amazing, because I, I guess I just really haven't thought about it that much. Yes, it is. And a, most people probably haven't. I mean, there are basically three major divisions of Christianity. There's Roman Catholicism. There's the entire Orthodox world, as in Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, and so on. And then there's the Protestant world. Now, the Catholic and the Orthodox world, they split in the 11th century. But this is going to occur in the 16th century. This is going to be the third division of Christianity, which we're going to spend time with. The Protestant Reformation did not just come out of nowhere all of a sudden because of Martin Luther. This was not so much a revolutionary event as an evolutionary event. Gotcha. Okay. But... 
in in the high middle ages and late middle ages there were rumblings against the catholic church i mean you had the waldensians and the albigensians you had john wycliffe at oxford in the 14th century these are people complaining these are individuals or groups refuting many catholic doctrines but they they didn't make that much headway and you had john hus the great czech patriot in the early 15th century who was burned at the stake in the council of constance Wow. Uh, so it's that not might... as though everything was hunky-dory and everyone uh, had no criticism of the church. And then all of a sudden Martin Luther comes along. But Martin Luther comes along at the right time. And he has a powerful intellect. Something else that aided Luther was some 25, 30 years before he was born, the printing press was developed. And this was a way of disseminating ideas at a much faster rate than if you had to hand copy everything. Right. So don't overlook the importance of the printing press. There was another element, too. By the time Martin Luther came along, nation states were really developing a certain pride in being nation states rather than just this. This is all over Europe. This is all over Europe. And and there was a consciousness of, of, of Germanhood. And many German aristocrats will back Martin Luther. Without that backing, Martin Luther would have probably faded away and been burned at the stake or something like that. So, so it's, Martin Luther is extremely important, but you have to take him in the context of what occurred before his time and during his time. Now to Luther himself. Okay. He was born on uh, November 10th, 1483. His father was Hans Luther. His mother was Margaret Ziegler. His father was a peasant miner. As uh, in like coal miner? Or? Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, usually I think a peasant's agriculturally related, but I've seen him referred to as a peasant miner. So Okay. And he had great aspirations for his son. I think Luther was a highly intelligent man. And so very early on, Luther was well-educated. Eventually, he would get a master's degree in 1505 at the University of Erfurt. And it seemed that he was going to become a lawyer. That's what his father wanted him to become. But all of a sudden, he had this tremendous religious surge, and he decided to become an Augustinian friar. Like an epiphany of some sort? Yes. uh, Apparently, he was in an electrical storm, and he swore to St. Anne that if he was saved, he would become a priest. I don't know how apocryphal that is, but in 1507, he did become a priest. In 1508, he began teaching at the University of Wittenberg, which is a newly created uh, university, where he would get his doctorate in theology in 1512. In 1511, he made his uh, first and only visit to Rome, and he was shocked, shocked by the corruption. By He uh, he didn't see it until he went to Rome? No, he was uh, increasingly aware of that, but Rome is what really brought it home to him. Ten-year-old cardinals, you had all sorts of uh, abuses, uh, simony, the buying of offices, pluralism, one man holding different bishoprics. This was going on all over. It was going on all over. Luther was aware of it, but his visit to Rome was just so shocking to him. And indeed, the Renaissance papacy was very corrupt. I mean, Alexander VI had illegitimate children. Uh, Cesare Borgia, his uh, bastard son, was the individual that Machiavelli uh, devoted his work, the prince, to. Um, Julius II, who was pope when Luther visited Rome, would lead his troops into battle. Well, I don't see that being so egregious. Well, it's a very territorial, very earthly uh, endeavor for a pope. Oh, you mean as 
as far as like the Crusades. No, no, not Crusades. They're fighting different Italian entities in Italy itself. The Renaissance papacy, by the time you get to the Renaissance papacy, the papacy has shrunk with respect to how much power it had. It was really uh, an Italian uh, princedom or principality trying to protect the papal states against other Italian states. And it was very much involved with uh, those kind of day-to-day events. The one thing about the Renaissance papacy, you got to give it, uh, the Renaissance Pope's new art. No velvet Jesuses in the Vatican. Thank goodness. I mean, you, know, you have Titian. Thank God, I should Raphael say. Raphael and Michelangelo and so on. It's some of the greatest artistic work of all time. I wonder but, why that one particular period, I mean, the majority of the art uh, happens. Well, you had other great periods, but yes, the Italian Renaissance, especially the High Renaissance, from around uh, 1490 to about 1527, uh, you just see one great artist after another. So Luther, Luther is still a Catholic. I mean, he's a, he's a priest. He he goes back to Germany after going uh, visiting Rome, and between 1512 and 1517, we don't have that much knowledge of what was going on in his mind between 1512 and 1517. What we do know about Luther is, even when he was a very young man, even a boy, he was tortured, tortured by the idea that he was going to go to hell. Oh. You can't you can't overlook this aspect of Luther. Uh, Luther felt that no matter how many good works he did, no matter how many masses he went to or said or whatever, he still didn't have that assurance that he would go to heaven. And this really, really... But didn't he read the Bible? He did read the Bible, uh, but he felt that, that he was still very likely predestined to hell. And he searched for some kind of comfort, and he found it finally. Somewhere between 1512 and 1517, we do not know exactly when, he came to the conclusion that you are saved by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. Wow. This is the doctrinal lover under the entire Protestant Reformation that other Protestant reformers like Zwingli and Calvin and so many others, Melanchthon, will also uh, accept. And this is a big difference from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church maintains its salvation by faith plus good works, whereas Protestantism is salvation by faith alone. And it's an instantaneous salvation. uh, As soon as you accept Christ as your Savior. That's correct. And and are baptized. Well, you can be baptized and then as an adult you can have uh, a realization that you're born again. And for the Catholic Church, salvation is an ongoing process throughout life. For the Protestant, it is an instantaneous redemption of the soul. Well, it's funny because with Catholicism, it's almost like the carrot on the stick. You're never going to reach it. Well, you have to keep striving for it, yes. Until when? Until death. (laughs) That's a whole lifelong process. It's a whole lifelong process, according to the Catholic Church, whereas with Luther and other Protestant reformers, it's an instantaneous justification. Uh, you were Personally, saved. I prefer that. Right. Well, I think there's merit both ways. But this is what Luther came to sometime between 1512 and 1517. And we don't know why. It was just... No, we don't know. He was studying the scriptures in right. one day. Right. And he was extremely knowledgeable of the scriptures. This is a man who knew Hebrew, ancient Greek, Latin. All right. He would translate every book of the Bible into German. In fact, his, it hadn't already been translated. Uh, there were previous translations, but his was magnificent. 
And he had this very great capacity to write German. In fact, he really influenced the German language uh, very much. What was it being translated from, the original well, Aramaic? Well, the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew, Hebrew, and the New Testament, Ancient Greek. So nothing was ever written in Aramaic. There's a debate as to whether the Gospel of Matthew and perhaps a couple other uh, works of the New Testament were first written in Aramaic. We're unsure about that. Okay. Uh, we don't know if the uh, prototype for, say, the Gospel of Matthew is actually an Aramaic text or not. But all 27 books of the New Testament are in ancient Greek. Okay. So, Luther had come to this conclusion. He still remained quiet, but what brought him out was the whole matter of the abuse of indulgences. This was another abuse of the Catholic Church. And this had been going on for... Oh, yes. Indulgences had started out centuries before, and actually there was a really good intention behind them. You had to do a great deed. You had to be very or very penitent about something that you had done wrong to have an indulgence, which was a temporary remission of sin, either here on earth or in purgatory. But by the time you get to Luther, they're just selling indulgences <laughs> a dime a dozen, uh, if you pay money, you get an indulgence, you get time off. And, and what exactly is an indulgence? Is it just it's a, a stamp of approval? It's a temporal remission of uh, of sin. So you won't have to spend as much time in purgatory. So it's only a verbal Well, it's, it's a guarantee, it's a guarantee by the Catholic Church. That, you know, so it's not a, a physical thing like here's, here's well, your get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, it's actually an item. Oh, it know, is an so, item. Yeah, yeah. So, and... and what was happening was there was a, a Dominican friar named John Tetzel who was selling who was selling uh, these indulgences in Germany because uh, the Archbishop of Mainz, Albert of Brandenburg, needed money. And he was selling these indulgences, and he wasn't even asking for the person to be penitent, etc. Just, here's an indulgence, give me the money, and so on. Oh. And this is, this is the tipping point for Luther. The, the whole abuse of indulgences. And so on October 31st, 1517, if you wanted the exact day when the Protestant Reformation <laughs> on began. On Halloween. On Halloween, 1517, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And all 95 Theses has to do with refutations of rejections of indulgences. It didn't deal with other doctrinal matters. Just that Just one that. thing. Right. But this is really, if you wanted the one day when the Protestant Reformation begins, this is the day. You remember, too, the Catholic... And why did he feel like he needed to nail it to the door? I think that uh, Luther had this realization that he was a man of destiny and that he was uh, doing God's work. So he couldn't just mass print a pamphlet or, you know, send it via courier pigeon. No, he wanted to make it very public, and he, that's why he nailed it to the church door at Wittenberg. And it became very well known very, very quickly. How did the church respond? Oh, the church responded fairly quickly. It got to Rome uh, fairly soon. In 1518, uh, the church sent a cardinal up to Germany to have an interview with Luther. It's known as the Augsburg interview. It was Cardinal, cardinal Kajitan. And he could elicit from Luther no remorse. Luther refused to back down. The Augsburg interview went nowhere. The very next year, in 1519, Luther had he had a debate with a Catholic theologian, Dr. Johannes Eck. And this is known as the Leipzig Disputation. And in this debate, was, this, very, was this like a public forum? It was very public, yes, mm -hmm. in Leipzig. Okay. And in this debate... 
Eck very cleverly drew out of Luther a lot of other reservations that Luther had about the Catholic Church, not just about indulgences. Oh, so he was and, trying to entrap him. In a way, yes. I mean, he, for instance, he got Luther to say that the burning of John Hus in 1415 at the Council of Constance was an error by the Catholic Church. And, of course, the Catholic Church thought that it had burned a heretic. I see. So... The next year, in 1520, the Pope, and the Pope at that time was Leo X, he was Pope from 1513 to 1521, Leo X issued a bull of excommunication. Oh. Yes. A bull of excommunication against Luther. It uh, gave Luther something like 60 or 90 days to repent, otherwise he'd be excommunicated. Luther didn't repent. In December, he actually burned the bull of excommunication. Now, I'm sorry, what is the bull? It's like a document. Okay, thank you. And it is a document put forth, put forth by the Catholic Church, by the Pope, and a bull of excommunication. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. I mean, they, they, they basically say you're a pariah. You are outside the grace of the Church. So essentially it's a, a cease and desist letter. It's more than a cease and desist. It's your, your entire soul is in peril, and you're going to go to hell. If, unless, unless you, you do X, Y, and Z. Right, and they gave Luther some like something like 60 days to take back. Uh, by this time, Luther's writing pamphlets. He's writing a lot of things. He's getting a lot of attention, I'm sure. I mean, sure. He's, writing, he's writing a lot of essays, like a, an address to the nobility of the German nation. He's writing on the Cab Babylonian captivity of the church, where he says that there really aren't seven sacraments. It's only really two, baptism and the Eucharist. He is criticizing the church in many other areas, not just indulgences. This is a big deal. He's also writing another pamphlet called The Freedom of a Christian Man, in which his whole point was the church doesn't get to tell you what the Bible really means. Every person can interpret what the Bible means. It's, uh, it's the priesthood of all believers. Although, ironically, what ends up happening is Luther ends up interpreting the Bible the way he wants to and expects others to listen to him. His point of view. His point of view. So, ironically, Luther, in a way, becomes a kind of pope which is, I think, a great irony in the entire Protestant Reformation. Well, in December of 1520, he burned the bull of excommunication in the town square of Wittenberg. Oh, uh, and in it the was town a very, square. It was a, a very public, uh, a, you know, he, a lot of people were there, and he burned this bull of excommunication. And in January, he was excommunicated. Now, this takes me to a man I uh, have a certain sympathy with. This is Charles V. Uh, Charles V was born in 1500. He would become king of Spain in 1516. He is the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. Oh, okay. He would also uh, become Holy Roman Emperor. So he's Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. He's Charles I of Spain. He becomes Holy Roman Emperor in 1519. He's still a teenager and a devout Catholic. So there was uh, legislative bodies in the uh, Holy Roman Empire called diets. All right. A word I do not enjoy. Right. It means it's something completely <laughs> different okay. in English. And interestingly enough, in 1521, the place where the diet was held was at Worms, which in English comes out Worms. Excellent. So it's the diet of Worms. So it's a diet of Worms. Right. You can't make this up. Luther was given a safe conduct pass to come to the Diet of Worms and explain his point of view before the Emperor, Charles oh, V. that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now, Charles V was good for his word. Uh, the safe pass given to Hus a uh, hundred years before was not honored. But 
Uh, Luther was given a safe pass to come and explain his views before the emperor and others. He must have had some type of security escort with him. Uh, he, he did, and by this time, a lot of people in Germany are supporting Hitler. Uh, did I say Hitler? You did say Hitler, <laughs> which surprised I, me. Well, a lot of people did support Hitler, too, but that's another century. That's, we got a few uh, By this time, a lot of people are supporting Luther, a lot of Germans. You, got, you can't divorce German nationalism, German patriotism from Luther. Oh, and he's one of them. Right. So there's a lot, and there's a lot of resentment toward the Catholic Church by a lot of ordinary Germans, a lot of German aristocrats, German businessmen, and Luther is kind of like their spokesman by this time. So he's becoming a rock star. He's becoming a rock star in the early 1520s. So he goes to the Diet of, of, of Worms, and he is asked if all these books and pamphlets and essays that were placed on a table were what he wrote. And he said, may I have just 24 hours to respond? They gave him 24 hours. He came back. He said, unless I can be convinced that what I have written does not accord with the Bible. I can't take any of this back. And he ended his statement by saying, here I stand, I can do no other. So Charles V was just amazed. Uh, this is a 21-year-old emperor, and a devout Catholic, and he said something to Luther. He said, how can 1,500 years of Catholicism be correct? And one German monk, uh, you know, or how can it be uh, 1,500 years be incorrect? And one German monk, correct. But Luther would not budge, and at the Diet of Worms, he refused to uh, back so down. So basically, he turned the tables and said, prove me wrong. Right. Unless you can prove me wrong by what the Bible says, I stand by what I have written. Well, safe conduct pass uh, still existed, and he made his way back to Wittenberg. All right. And, of course, the safe conduct pass after that would expire Basically, he was a pariah. He was an outcast of the empire, which means anyone could kill him. Oh, dear. Yes. On his way back to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped. <gasps> kidnapped? He was kidnapped by Frederick the Wise of Saxony. Now, Frederick the Wise was Catholic, but he saw the value of Luther, and he put him in uh, his castle at Wartburg to protect him. And Luther actually spent about a year in this castle under the protection of Frederick the Wise. And it's during this time that he writes even more. This is when he translates the New Testament from the ancient Greek to German. He'll do the Old Testament later on in the 1530s. And So the whole point was to just let things die down a little bit. Yes, but things aren't uh, dying down. Uh, Luther is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, many in Germany agree with him. Remember the church, of course, as I mentioned, was quite corrupt. You had the humanists like uh, Desiderius Erasmus, who uh, were very critical of the church, although Erasmus would remain a Catholic. He would not become a Protestant. So at this point, the church obviously is being called out on their bad behavior. Yes. Did it change their behavior in any way? Mm, well, that's... That'll take us to the Counter-Reformation, which is what we're going to do in the next episode. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> the church will respond. Because and, obviously and, they're being called out, like, right. look, you're selling I mean, indulgences. You're yeah, doing you have simony, you have pluralism. Yeah, you're doing so this, I would think that. they would stop that immediately. There were other resentments against the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church maintained that it had really superiority over temporal rulers, and a lot of rulers did not like that. And the Catholic Church is not something else that you don't want to overlook. The Catholic Church was immensely wealthy. It owned huge amounts of real estate and so on. 
well, if you could prove that the Catholic Church was an error, oh. then you could confiscate its lands. You could confiscate its wealth. And redistribute. And a lot of German aristocrats and others are looking at this. So you see, this is all part of the mix in which Luther is functioning. Now, Lutheranism is spreading very fast, but then an event occurs called the Peasants' Revolt, 1524, 1525. And the peasants, peasants are always oppressed. They always have too many taxes. They're always expected. We're still oppressed. They're still, yeah, in many places, peasants I mean, are still oppressed. We're kind of the peasants here. Well, being a peasant in America is not that bad. That's a very good <laughs> point, yes. Um, but the Peasants' Revolt of 1524-25... And really, this is in Germany. This is in Germany, and it had a very negative effect on the spread of Lutheranism. Lutheranism, up until the Peasants' Revolt, was catching on fire throughout Germany. But the Peasants' Revolt put a stop to that because a lot of German aristocrats concluded that since Luther had criticized the church and had opened up avenues toward that authority, that the peasants could now criticize other authority, oh, such as the aristocrats. I see. And, and so what going. happened was the peasants' revolt was crushed, but it stopped Lutheranism rather dead in its tracks in the southern half of Germany. So the southern half of Germany, like Bavaria, remained Roman Catholic, and the northern portions of Germany remained Lutheran. And it was all because the nobility didn't want to be called out like the church had right. been. Right, and but for the Peasants' Revolt, Lutheranism might have spread throughout all of Germany. By the way, Luther wrote a tract against the peasants. Uh, he, he came out against the peasants because the peasants really admired Luther. They were, they were, he was an inspiration to them, but Luther could not put up with their violence. So some of the peasants became very violent, burned things, things like that. So Luther sided with the aristocrats against the peasants. And that kind of put a damper on the spread of Lutheranism I understand, uh, yeah. at that point in time. But by that time, Lutheranism was spreading into Scandinavia, into Norway, into Denmark, into Sweden, and of course... Were uh, they already Catholic up there? Oh yeah, they were all Catholic, but they okay. very, very quickly became Lutheran. And of course, they would remain Lutheran. They're even Lutheran to this day. So like Lutheranism is still the state church of, of Sweden. Oh. Uh, so Lutheranism spreads not only throughout much of Germany, but it spreads all through Scandinavia. Okay, what about further west in Europe? Well, let me just mention one or two more things about Luther, then I'll, I'll deal with uh, other okay. areas. Luther actually married an ex-nun, Catherine von Bora. He had six children by her. Oh. Three boys, three girls. Apparently, he had a very happy family life. He also wrote hymns. Uh, one of them, uh, his greatest is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote that? He wrote that. Who knew? Yes. This was a, an amazing... I mean, if you look at his collected works, it's like 43 or 46 volumes or something like that. I mean, he's just writing this stuff, and he's handing it off to be printed, and uh, his, so his ideas are being disseminated. Uh, very, is, how is he making money at this point? Uh, he is supported at Wittenberg by continuing to teach there, and he didn't have money problems. I don't think he cared about money that much, but he had enough to survive. Well, he had to support six kids yeah. and a wife. Well, he, his, you know, he was writing a lot. And so he was were, making money from the office publications. Yes, right. And, uh, and there were aristocrats supporting him that were very much behind him. Okay. So Luther, I don't think, uh, really ever had to worry about that. But... What's interesting is the Protestant Reformation is going to spread. In Switzerland, there's a, nine, a man named Ulrich Zwingli, who also became a Catholic priest, but he was born just two months after Luther uh, on New Year's Day, 1484. 
And he's going to come to many of the same conclusions that Luther came to. There's a question as how how much he was influenced by Luther. He's going to write something called the 67 Articles in 1523, by which time he would have known about Luther. And yeah, this sounds like a copycat. Well, there's a lot maintained as Zwingli independently came to this. There's a question as how much he was dependent on Luther, but he broke away from the Catholic Church, and the more urban cantons of Switzerland became Protestant like almost overnight. It's but only they weren't called Zwinglis. No, they weren't called Zwingli. <laughs> no, they weren't Zwinglians. Um, because that takes me to a third reformer, John Calvin. What is interesting about John Calvin is Zwingli and Luther are first-generation reformers. John Calvin's born in 1509, a generation after Luther and Zwingli. And John Calvin also uh, studied for the priesthood. His father wanted him to be a priest. Uh, at the last moment, he changed and became a lawyer because his father wanted him to do that. Uh, he's just the opposite of Luther. Yes. And he's a, he's a Frenchman. And sometime in the early 1530s, he had this conversion experience. And it's very obscure. We don't know exactly even what year. But he came to the conclusion that the Catholic Church was in error on many points, just as Luther did, just as Zwingli did. And in 1536, he wrote uh, his masterwork, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Originally, it was only something like six chapters, but it would be re-edited and re-edited until by 1559, it had 80 chapters in it. All written by him. All written by him in Latin, and he would translate his Latin work into French. And he did for French what uh, Luther did for German. It's a very polished French, and it helped to influence the French language. Uh, oh, Calvin, okay. uh, like Luther, was uh, extremely well-educated, uh, ancient Greek, uh, Latin, uh, all of that. So they, they never overlapped? Well, don't forget, uh, he's about 25, 26 years younger than Luther. Okay, okay. but they now, never met or they never Luther, exchanged letters. Uh, I don't know of, that Calvin and Luther ever met. I know okay. that Zwingli and Luther met. They actually met in 1529 at Marburg. And they agreed on almost everything except on the doctrine of the Eucharist. Oh. Luther, the doctrine of the Eucharist in Catholicism is transubstantiation. The, the oh, right. Transubstantiation per Catholic doctrine is that the bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's a miracle. Luther's position is very close to the Catholic Church. It's what's known as consubstantiation. Luther maintained that... It still remains bread and wine, but it's also the body and blood of Christ. Now, Zwingli... Why, Why doesn't anybody just see it as symbolism? Well, I'm getting, that's exactly what Zwingli said. Finally. Zwingli maintained at the Marburg uh, colloquy where Luther and, and, and Zwingli had a discussion in Marburg. Zwingli said that the Eucharist ceremony was merely symbolic. There was no miracle occurring or anything. There's no eating somebody's body and drinking their blood. Right. Well, this led to a, I mean, at the end of the Marburg uh, debate or colloquy or whatever, they completely disagreed on the Eucharist. Zwingli offered Luther his hand just to shake, and Luther refused to shake his hand. Oh, my word. Yeah. Grow so, up, people. Right. <laughs> Well, what's interesting is Calvin will come to a slightly different position on the Eucharist. Like Luther, like Zwingli, he thinks there's only really two sacraments, not seven, such as holy orders and uh, matrimony and extramunction and all that. Luther did away with that. Zwingli did. Calvin did. But Calvin did believe that the Eucharist ceremony, there was a spiritual presence. 
So you have four different points of view on the Eucharist. The Catholic point of view is transubstantiation. The Lutheran point of view is consubstantiation. The Zwinglian point of view is it's just merely symbolic. And the Calvinistic point of view is that there's a spiritual presence. So who's right? Well, it just goes to show you that uh, you can interpret things different ways. I mean, look at, look at Luther's uh, arriving at justification by faith alone. He really came to that conclusion because of what Paul says in the letter to the Romans, that you were justified by faith, and Luther maintained, aha, you don't have to do good works. I mean, if you're a devout Christian, you will end up doing good works, but that's not important. You are justified instantaneously by faith alone. Now, the Catholic Church interprets Romans differently. And there's a passage in another work of the New Testament, letter of James, in chapter 2, where it says, uh, you are not justified by faith alone. So It's faith plus works. Yes, faith plus works. So these are debates that are still carried on to this day. Although they truly are. This, you know, yeah, they really are. Yeah, completely. But the idea of justification by faith alone is the fundamental difference. Between um, you and me. <laughs> I'm not yeah, just so, just so our listeners know, yeah, we had right. both a Catholic priest and a Presbyterian minister at our wedding. That's right, because uh, Rebecca's uh, Protestant relatives wouldn't show up if uh, we had a Catholic ceremony, and my mother, uh, who's a Ca- who was a Catholic, uh, she wouldn't show up if we had a Protestant ceremony. Oh, my God, you realize that when you get married, it's not about you, it's not about the all. families. So we got a Presbyterian uh, minister, who was a very nice man. Yes. And uh, we had a Catholic priest, and it turned out that they were friends. Remember? Thankfully, yes. Yeah, and and so we had both at the at the ceremony. I I didn't really care myself, but we did it to satisfy the family. The families, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your wedding is not a, wedding's not about the bride and groom. Wedding's about the families. Always yeah. and forever. Yeah, what a mess. But anyway, getting back to John Calvin, uh, eventually he had to leave France because France was Catholic. His life was in danger. He made his way to Switzerland. Eventually, he makes his way to G- Geneva. And with the exception of three years, he will spend the rest of his life in Geneva until his death in 1564, and he will completely restructure the entire way Geneva is run. Oh. Uh, And he will be in charge, and he is extremely strict. Uh, Of not just the church? Well, that's a good question. You see, Luther deferred to secular authorities. Luther didn't really care about secular matters. He just cared about doctrinal matters. And with respect to secular matters, he was very deferential to princes, to uh, burghers, to various uh, lay authorities. Not John Calvin. John Calvin felt that the elders and the uh, pastors, the deacons of, of the church, should basically run society. So Luther's view is known as an Erastian view. It's deferential to secular authority. Uh, whereas what John Calvin created in Geneva is basically a theocracy in which the church... Well, how is that different than the Catholic Church? Uh, the Catholic Church uh, does not is not a theocracy. The Catholic Church does not maintain... But it that, did at one point. Well, yes, if you go back if you go back into the High Middle Ages with someone like Gregory VII, they, exactly. did, they did claim. But the Catholic Church uh, in the last many centuries, completely, they, there's no connection between the Catholic Church trying to control secular authorities. In fact, when John Kennedy ran in 1960 for president, and he was Roman Catholic, right, right 
he had to he had to actually meet with a group of uh, many Protestant ministers in Texas, and he had to answer because a lot of Protestants really thought that uh, if you had a Catholic president, he would be subservient to, to the, the Pope, Pope. Even in 1960, well, uh, John Kennedy said no, that's not the case. He said the church, the uh, Pope is not going to tell me what to do with respect to anything as president. And he, if he and, and Kennedy went on to say, and if he did do that, I would tell him he was wrong. <laughs> So Good answer. Uh, JFK kind of put that to the side. Then he became the first Catholic president of the United States. And that kind of put to rest uh, any lingering Protestant suspicions, etc., about that. And the Catholic Church, by the late 19th century, especially by the Pope like Leo XIII, they'd really come into the modern world and, and deferred to democracy and it didn't want to control the secular realm or whatever. But getting back to Calvin, oh, yeah. In Geneva, uh, it was a theocracy. The church controlled the city. Was yeah, it a good thing much. or a bad thing? It was extremely strict. Uh, you you couldn't even name a baby of yours other than a biblical name. One guy named his son Claudius, and he was put in jail until he renamed him Abraham. Oh, wow. And uh, wow. There, were, there were people uh, that were executed. Uh, there was a Spaniard named Michael Savitas who came to Geneva, and uh, neither Catholics nor Protestants liked him because he denied the Trinity. And Calvin told him, don't come to Geneva. Well, he came to Geneva, and Calvin had him put to death. <gasps> That's not very nice. <laughs> it's not very nice. Uh, no, uh, not at all. See, this is why people don't like the church. Well, you gotta, you've got to, you can't bring your 21st century mindset back to the 16th century. I mean, it's a very different world back then. Well, when it comes to executing people who don't believe the same thing as you. Yes. Well, when we covered the Salem witch trials, fortunately, the last time that happened in America was 1692. But well, Calvin was uh, very strict that way. Uh, it's interesting too. I, w- I would have thought the people would have risen up at that point and said, "This no, this is not for us. No, interesting you mentioned that. He, he came to uh, Geneva in 1536. By 1538, the people were tired of him. Hmm. So he had to leave for three years. But then the people begged him to come back. Oh, jeez. And so from 1541 to 1564. Can't live with them, can't live without them. Right. They actually welcomed him back. There are differences, other differences between Luther and Calvin. I just want to mention a couple. Uh, Luther emphasized the love of God as found in the New Testament. Calvin emphasized the majesty and power of God as found in the Old Testament. Uh, Luther wouldn't forbid anything as long as it wasn't forbidden in the in the Bible. Uh, Calvin wouldn't sanction anything unless it specifically was sanctioned in the Bible. Wow. But the biggest difference, other than the Eucharist, where Luther was with consubstantiation and Calvin thought it was a spiritual presence, was on the matter of predestination. It's not as though Luther, or the Catholics for that matter, denied predestination. I mean, if God knows everything, he knows who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven and so on. But Calvin emphasized predestination with a remorseless logic. That was the emphasis in What do you uh, mean, a remorseless logic? It was, it was it put front and center as the most, just about the most important doctrine. It has always been there in the background, even with Catholicism, uh, with Luther, but Calvin really pushed that idea that there were going to just be, I mean, Calvin's point of that, view. That it was the case. That it was the case and, and that most people would be confined to hell. Uh, St. Augustine. So what's the point of being a good person? Well, if you're not a good person, then you know you're going to hell. 
But just because you're a good person doesn't mean you're going to heaven. And I don't like that. God, in the way Calvin was very beholden to St. Augustine, who lived from the 4th to the early 5th century, died in 430 AD. And Augustine basically maintained that we all deserve to go to hell. But God, in his mercy, saved some of us. But then we get to the original sin, and we get into all of that. Yeah, well, that's... That's, that's this unique. could be a four-hour episode. That's unique to Christianity, original sin. A lot of people don't know this, but original sin does not exist in either Judaism or Islam. Oh. It's only in Christianity. But did Jesus come up with that idea of original sin? It kind of uh, permeates through the Bible. It's interesting. There's a lot of things that don't aren't necessarily said by Jesus, but was developed by the church. Like, for instance, there's no point in the New Testament where Jesus specifically mentions the Trinity. And yet. And yet. Right. So It's such a huge part of right. Well, you know, what's interesting about the Catholic Church is that maintains, uh, very interestingly, that, that the church existed even before the Bible did, that it started with Jesus and his apostles even before the first writings of the New Testament, like those of Paul. Right. That's why the Catholic Church maintains to this day it's not just the Bible, but it's also the tradition of the entire church, whereas Protestantism just focuses on the Bible. Right. Upon right. this rock, I yes. shall build my church. Well, that that, is come from, that comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, and that is the authorization, according to the Catholic Church, for the papacy. But Protestants dispute that and maintain that Jesus didn't mean it that way. But, you see, you can read... It's all in the interpretation. You can read, you can read Romans... There's various passages in Romans written by Paul that the Catholic Church interprets as faith plus good works for salvation. Those same passages were interpreted by Luther and other Protestant reformers as faith alone. It's amazing. Well, I mean, that's why we have a whole branch of government to interpret our Constitution. Yes, you mean the judiciary. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, because everyone has a different idea of the meaning well, of the law. Judges can come to very different conclusions from one another. I mean, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was still living, they had very different opinions, even though they were looking at the same Constitution. But they could do it amicably. Yes, I think they can, and and many, and I, I. You know, Which today, it seems I like think, a lot of times in the church it doesn't happen as I think today it, it does. I mean, I think Catholics and Protestants uh, have pretty much buried the hatchet. I mean, look at the fact that uh, when we got married, it was a Presbyterian minister and a Catholic priest, and they were good friends. That's true. Okay. I yeah. mean, it's not, nobody's being burned at stake anymore. Thankfully. Or, be, or being hung or whatever. Uh, but in the 16th century, that was different. Now, what's interesting is, Calvinism basically gives rise to what is known as the Reformed religion. And Calvinism catches on a lot of places, like in Western Germany, along the Rhineland, in the Netherlands, where it's called the Dutch Reformed Church, and in Scotland, where it's called Presbyterianism. But it's all Calvinism. And John Knox, who the great Scottish, sure. uh, you know, he's a priest, and then he broke away from the church, and he also gave Mary Queen of Scots a lot of problems. Uh, John Scott, uh, John Knox actually studied under Calvin in Geneva oh. and then went back to Scotland. He was very instrumental in ensuring that Scotland would overwhelmingly go Calvinistic, Protestant, Presbyterian. As opposed to Catholic England. Right. So you have, and then you have the third main branch of uh, Protestantism, which will be the Anglican Church. Uh, when Henry VIII breaks away from the Catholic Church, 
Then you have it becoming even more Protestant under his son Edward. Then you have uh, Mary coming in trying to restore the Catholic Church, but that is not successful. That she did dies not in go five well. years. Then Elizabeth comes in and establishes what is known as the Elizabethan Settlement, which is basically a brilliant, wonderful don't ask, way. Don't ask, don't tell. Well, it's, it's a classic example of the English uh, muddling to a conclusion. English, uh, the Elizabethan settlement basically had Calvinistic theology with Catholic ritual. <laughs> Interesting. And about 80% of the English accepted that. About 10% didn't, the Catholics. And another 10% thought it was too Catholic. And they are the origin of the Puritans. Aha. Uh -huh. See, it all ties together. It certainly does. Yes, it's a seamless web. Well, this is certainly a topic that is almost inexhaustible. And the fact that we've gone over 45 minutes on this topic. Uh, yes, we have to end. We can't go on longer than that. But Luther is the real mover and shaker above all others. He's above, the one who started it. Yes, above Zwingli, above Calvin, above Melanchthon, above so many. He is the one that really... Uh, I just end it by saying that by 1555... Germany was so divided that it was decided at the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, the Latin term was quius regio eius religio, whose territory, his religion. So if you were a prince in Germany and you wanted to be a Lutheran, your subjects had to be Lutheran. If you were an aristocrat, a noble, a margrave, whatever, and you wanted to be a Catholic, your subjects had to be Catholic. Wow. Yeah. And there was no room for Calvinism. I was, was like, that's a Luth lot of division. It was just Lutheranism and Catholicism. But, uh, yes, Protestant Reformation was uh, an earth-shaking event. The Catholic Church is going to respond to the Protestant Reformation and what is known as the Counter-Reformation. Ooh, I can't and wait. And that's what we're doing next. That's what we're doing next. And it is going to come back with a vengeance. Ooh, I can't wait. Yes, stay tuned. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. All well, right. listeners, thank you for being here and being such a loyal audience. We do appreciate every time you listen to our podcast. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. And until next time, stay well, stay safe. Yes, uh, so long and goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs>